You're listening to the It's Only Rock and Roll Podcast with your host, Don DiMuccio. Just let me hear some of that rock and roll music. Rock and roll suicide. Well, all right. Welcome to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast. I am your host and three-time winner of the B.B. Rebozo Lookalike Contest, Don DiMuccio. And I am just beyond thrilled to have on the show today a musician who's not only played with just about everybody you can think of in the multitude of genres, but was also an integral part of two of the most renowned classic TV comedy variety shows of the past 45 years, Saturday Night Live and Late Night with David Letterman. Of course, I'm talking about the world's most dangerous keyboard player, Paul Schaefer who also now serves as musical director for the annual Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremonies. Not a bad gig. As if all that wasn't enough, he co-wrote arguably the last of the great disco-era dance tunes, It's Raining Men by the Weather Girls. And I'm not even including his movie work, appearing in This Is Spinal Tap and The Blues Brothers 2000, both of which I forgot to ask him about. Damn it. band leader sort of fell out of fashion during the onset of rock and roll and tends to be associated with the big band era but make no mistake today's guest is truly a rock and roll band leader for five seasons on saturday night live and a staggering 33 years as musical director and sidekick for david letterman 
This keyboard's extraordinaire has quite literally played with everybody, from Chuck Berry to Wayne Newton, either on network television or in his tenure as musical director and producer for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremonies since its inception in 1986. But to me, he'll always be Polymer Records' Midwest promo rep for Spinal Tap, Adi Fufkin. Please welcome to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast, Thunder Bay's favorite son, Paul Schaefer. Well, thank you so much, and thank you for remembering my hits. Especially Especially. Adi Fufkin. (laughs) Uh, Exactly. It's nice to be with you this morning, or whenever you're going to play this. <laughs> it's morning somewhere, as they say. Yeah, that's right, that's right. It's such an honor to have you on, man. Thank you for doing it. You know, I want to start off a little bit about what's been hitting everybody, especially the entertainment businesses, this COVID situation. And I didn't realize until recently, during the start of the whole thing last year, you and your wife were hospitalized for it. My Well, uh, I got it first, and I got it at a show, probably the last rock and roll show in in Manhattan, which was at the Beacon Theater, yeah, yeah, uh, where a lot of people got it. Anyway, uh, and then I gave it to my wife, uh, who was taking care of me, and, you know, my symptoms were a little different. I didn't have trouble breathing or every, anything, and so they, you know, I had doctors telling me, you don't really have COVID, but of course it was. They found out later, yeah, you, your symptoms can be that way too. Yeah. And then my wife had to go to the hospital, but it was never on a ventilator. And thank God in heaven, they let her out and uh, we're okay now. So thank you for asking. And that was way back at the beginning, a year ago, March. Right, right. So much has been learned since then. and you know That's right. Well, when she was in the hospital, they were just learning, trying things on her, a steroid, you know, the... They're having success with this in in Belgium or something, you know, they yeah, give yeah. it a try. That's the the point that they were at as far as treatment. Right. But they sure did a good job with her. Well, I'm glad to hear everybody's okay. Yeah. I got to ask you, what is your earliest memory of hearing rock and roll? Probably Elvis coming on. The, you know, I was in Canada. Right. Growing up in, uh, although I was born in Toronto, raised in Thunder Bay, Ontario, Canada, which is a town on the north shore of Lake Superior. And I think rock and roll probably arrived a little later up at Thunder Bay than it did, uh, you know, say, uh, down here in the USA. Yeah. But I certainly remember identifying Elvis, you know. In, in 55, I, I was five years old. And I remember, you know, being attracted to that sound. It was new to my ears. Uh, the twang of the guitars impressed me. And then I remember hearing when they started using strings on rock records, pop records and stuff, that combination sort of surprised me. Violins and, and twangy electric guitars kind of fascinated me as, as a child. Then uh, when I heard, I think, 100 Pounds of Clay by Gene McDaniels. Great song. Yes, more you know, more more pop R and B, I guess, uh, than rock. Nonetheless, it had four chords. For the first time, I heard four chords instead of just the three of rock and roll, and and that then I was really hooked. <laughs> Something about that six minor chord just before you go four five one. Right. I don't know. That's when I really zeroed in on pop music. Did it hit you that you wanted to play, or did that come later? Well, I never thought I was going to play professionally. Too far-fetched an ambition for somebody that far away from the action. Mm -hmm. And Canadians are a little pessimistic anyway. We're kidded a lot about being uh, too polite, you know. Sorry, sorry, eh? 
<laughs> but but also, you know, the Canadians' attitude was, you know, so who do you think you are, eh? Uh, you know, going to be like a rock star, eh? So no, I thought, you know, I, I went to, when I went to college in Toronto, I didn't exactly know what I was going to do, but I thought I'd have a profession of some kind. I was taking sociology, psychology and classes, but going and hanging out in the village that they had up there, Yorkville Village, and, and seeing blues and R&B and stuff that they had in Toronto. And by this time, I'm 19, 18, 19, you know. But I sure wanted to sit down at the piano and play it as a kid. I was taking piano lessons from an early age. My mother's attitude was that kid is going to play the piano if it's the last thing he does. <laughs> um, she didn't necessarily think, of, you know, I'd be a rock pianist. But when I heard it, when I started to hear rock and roll and, you know, 100 pounds of clay and stuff, I had to figure that out. You know, what's going on there? And I started figuring it out by ear, just like any self-taught musician would. Except that I had piano lessons going on, too. Well, I was going to say, a lot of stories I've heard, like even my mother, she's your age, and she was playing classical piano as a kid, and there was a lot of resistance by the teachers to get them into boogie or get them into rock and roll. Did you feel any of that? I, well, I, first of all, I was lucky. My, with my teacher that, that I had up there, Mrs. Hardy, God bless her, I didn't, but I, there is certainly a classical tradition, and there's some validity to it, that if you let a kid start to develop his ear and start to play by ear, he will no longer read music. He will fake it and start to play everything by ear. And that was the case with me. I used to, you know, have the teacher play it first, watch her fingers, listen, and, you know, and then just play it back kind of that way by rote. Right. Ear, ear, and also what I learned from watching. But Mrs. Hardy uh, encouraged my ear. We used to study, uh, you know, a very standardized course up there, the Royal Conservatory of Music courses. Uh, everybody would have the same books, and then they would send out examiners up to places like Thunder Bay. Everybody would take the exams, and, uh, you know, there was eight points on the exam for saint reading, and she said, well, you won't get those, but you'll make up for it uh, the eight points on the ear training. And that's, you know, somehow she encouraged my ear, got a kick out of how I could pick up things from the, the radio, and certainly Boogie Woogie, yes, that was the era when that was all the rage, you know, if you could play a little Boogie Woogie and swing it right. a little bit, people would get a kick out of that. <laughs> it was kind of early. Sure. And, and then, the, I guess 1962 was the year that the big record came out of L.A., uh, Nutrocker, by B. Bumble and the Stiggers. Right. A, a boogie version of uh, something from the Nutcracker Suite. was kind of revelatory for me. When you read uh, the, like the English guy, the English uh, British Invasion guys like Rod Argent and the keyboard players of that era, apparently mm. they were all playing nut rocker too over in England. Um, so yes, this was my era. You know, rock and roll galvanized me. It gave me something to live for. I don't think I'm unusual. No. You know, I think a lot of people probably misfits, you know. And yeah. I was certainly a misfit up in Thunder Bay. You had to be rugged. You had to enjoy the outdoors. That's what it was all about out there. And you, you, you've you <laughs> seen my physique. 
I didn't exactly, you know, although I was a good skier, yeah. you had to, you know, do either ski or skate. So I was skiing every weekend, freezing cold, 30 below. Ugh. Well, 20 anyway, 20 below, you know, to going skiing. And what I remember most, though, was standing in line shivering for that chairlift. <laughs> and they had, like at a carnival, a big loudspeaker playing music. Uh, while you stood stood there, almost like they attract a crowd to a carnival show. Right. And blasting out of this speaker came a little lower than that, but Lion Sleeps Tonight yeah. by the Tokens. And that, you know, uh, that day skiing, that's all I could think about was the sound of that record. That's great. And you yeah. made reference earlier to radio. How influential was radio out there for you? Well, certainly, that's, this is how we got our music. Uh, and I think it was that way, you know, until the, the rise of the Internet. This is how we heard the music. And we, you know, we, there were three station, local stations in town. Two of them went all rock and roll at the same time. I remember this. I don't know what year that might have been. You know, 50s or maybe, 57 or something, or, or 60. Maybe not till 60, but every, they started playing rock and roll. And then very revelatory to me that I found that after, and a couple of kids, you know, we would be talking about it at, in, in school, but after dark, you could pick up American radio stations. Oh, yeah. And I could hear WLS in Chicago. Very influential. I, I tuned in every night at 10 p.m. to hear the top three most requested songs in Chicagoland. And they, they were only in America by Jay and the Americans, you know, and it was number one for week after week. So this would have been 63, I guess. Mm-hmm. I was listening to WLS. And then uh, KAAY, Little Rock, Arkansas, started to come through. And after midnight, they were all soul music. So this was, you know, pretty far removed from Canada, except, strangely enough, not so much. Toronto was a town where they loved soul music, and they had bands, white bands, doing like James Brown shows and Sam and Dave style acts and emulating, you know, the acts of the, of the, of the, the real R&B acts from the States. I don't know what a K-A-A-Y, you know, boy, I heard some soulful records after midnight. Very ins- inspiring. Did you get many acts up there coming through town? No. No? Answer is no. However, the first musical concert, I, uh, I remember my grandfather taking me to see Liberace. Know who that is? Of course. Of course. Yes. Well, I don't know. No, How old I know. are you? I'm 50. Oh, okay. And well, I, still, I, you know. I remember seeing him on the Letterman show. That's right. He appeared on Letterman. Yeah, yeah. And not a shabby piano player by any means. He was good, too. And, you know, that show of Letterman, the two guests on Letterman that night were Liberace and Bob Dylan. Wow, there's a double billing, I know. I know, I know and I think Liberace <laughs> cooked. Yes. But D- Dylan performed, but Liberace cooked. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Crazy. Yeah, those were the days. Yes, sir. Now, let's see. What were we talking about? Well, oh, uh, yeah. I don't know. I got carried away. You know, I got lost in, in my rock and roll, as I, they say, and drift away. <laughs> it's funny because I've heard the story before. You know, a lot of people say, well, I became a performer because I saw the Beatles and that self, and I'm sure that inspired you too. But your inspiration to become a performer had something to do with a family vacation. Oh, yes, yes. Well, before I get to that, I want to comment on that Beatles on Sullivan thing. Please. Because it still amazes me how people, even you know, of my age and even older who say that, Almost everybody 
here in the, in in business here in the in the USA. Joe Walsh comes to mind. The Beatles on when I saw the Beatles on Sullivan. Well, it wasn't so to me, and you know, maybe uh, maybe I was a little late to the Beatles realizing their greatness, but. To us in Canada, you know, we were, we loved American music. Right. And sometimes I, I like to say when the Beatles came, were on, I was, I barely noticed I was still reeling from the Four Seasons <laughs> when they sang Big Girls Don't Cry. Yeah. That killed me. And they had a, you know, a guy on keyboard, of course, Bob Gaudio, so that I could relate to that. Sure. But boy, I, you know, my recollections of Sullivan were, were that, Jackie Wilson, his appearances, um, never forget Bo Diddley, things like that, you know. So the Beatles were, they were British, and I guess, you know, we in Canada, we were kind of British subjects too. Maybe it wasn't quite as special, all of that British stuff and how, uh, you know, they had the House of Commons and the, uh, hmm. the, Beatles, the Beatles at Buckingham Palace and the Americans found that so enchanting. Well, I always think it's because <clears throat> Kennedy's assassination was only, what, eight weeks earlier? Right, and right, of course. the kids were looking for something that wasn't American, wasn't something that their parents necessarily approved of. And I yeah. think that timing had as much to do with everything, not to take away the greatness of my favorite band, but I think timing means everything. And the Canadians didn't have that dynamic going. Perhaps. We, we certainly felt uh, the death of uh, President Kennedy, oh, though, I'm sure. even yeah. up there. He was international. Of course. Internationally uh, popular, you know, beyond... Oh, my mother was so... And as a matter of fact, there's a sketch of her. I've, I'm looking at her on the wall right now. She's been, you know, d d gone a long time. But I remember how... She said, I had to I had to pose for this picture the, the same day that Kennedy... You know, we heard of Kennedy being shot. Uh -huh. And it's recorded right there how sad she was. Certainly, though, I know, you know, timing is everything. And, and we know about how it killed the Phil Spector Christmas album. Yes, too, the, yes. The yes. timing of that. Um, but uh, the Beatles were, of course, you know, I realized it later. And then when I, when, now when I go back and hear that early stuff, you know, I see the greatness of that. And how Ringo swung those records. You know, the, the most underappreciated Beatle, you know. Of course. He made us dance to those records. Uh, but 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 getting back to what you said, yeah, my parents, this conservative couple, you know, mother born in Toronto, father up, born right up there in Thunder Bay, and he was a lawyer. But they loved their show business, and watching the Ed Sullivan show with them was uh, like an education. They they knew all the backstories of people like Peter Nero, the pianist, and I Pessy O'Shea used to have on the British dance hall. You know, they could mm. tell me all about that. How God bless Ed Sullivan. He had a black, you know, the black R&B acts on when nobody else would and stuff. And sure. Boy, was that ever educational. But my parents loved uh, the Rat Pack, uh, the Sinatra. Mm -hmm. And in that spirit, they took me to uh, Las Vegas on a family trip. Most families might go camping, you know, in the Adirondacks or something. <laughs> we went to Las Vegas and... Um, I got to see, you know, uh, bands, uh, not bands. Today, we everything is, is a band, except that era is gone too. But, in, you know, performers, Vegas-style performers, and I'll never forget seeing Nat King Cole in a showroom. Wow. And I'll never forget that we changed hotels so we could be in the same hotel where 
Sarah Vaughan was singing in the lounge every night. And my dad was in there every night listening to her, me listening from outside. Because I was too young, you know, to yeah. get into the lounge. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, off, uh, awfully educational. And, you know, and when I saw Juliet Prowse's show, she was a, a gorgeous South African dancer, entertainer, whose claim to, well, claim to fame at the time was that she was dating Sinatra. Okay. But, boy, I mean, I never saw a girl like that dressed so <laughs> so skippily like that. <laughs> it's got to affect you somehow. Were you like 12, 13? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Forget it, you know. And you're seeing the life. reaction from the audience and, and just the, the whole thing. You know, if you had just heard their record, you might not have been turned on to it. But when you're up there so close, and at least that's how it was for me when I saw bands. It's like, I just wanted to do that. It was just something about it. You can't yeah. put your finger on it. You know? Well, I guess, you know, yes, I guess it, that it probably was the case for me. But again, I would never have admitted it even to myself too far-fetched. Yep. And yep. that's why, you know, I still went to college and was definitely going to be a some kind of an academic. I don't know. Oh, and I had played, you know, in a band up in Thunder Bay, uh, like so many of us, a, a high school rock band. Sure. And we were talking about, you know, do we see many concerts up there? After Liberace, uh, the Beach Boys appeared right after Brian stopped touring with them and Bruce Johnson was with them. Mm -hmm. And I certainly saw that. And then I and my band had a, a regular booking uh, Saturday evenings, a big dance in the hockey arena, freezing cold again, mm -hmm. plywood on the ice and a stage erected. Kids, trot, you know, not really dancing because they're all bundled up in their warm parkas. <laughs> There's no yeah. place to check your coats. Yeah. Uh, and let me tell you something. I went to the famous club in Minneapolis where Prince uh, shot Purple Rain. Oh, yeah. That hip club there where everybody's so turned out and the girls are gorgeous and they got battles of the bands. Well, they had their coats on just like the hockey arena. Oh, sure. It's freezing in, in uh, Minneapolis, too. <laughs> but um, we opened for... My, me, I and my band opened for the Trogs. Oh. Very proud to say, yes. Reg Presley. Exactly. Yep. And I had a little, you know, a, ch a little chat with him. Reg Presley, no longer with us, as you know. I know, yeah. And we opened for Eric Burden and the New Animals up there. This was the uh, group he had with the electric violin. Well, well, I know Andy Summers of uh, The Police had a stint with them for a while. I may have seen him. Yeah. I don't know for sure. Like 68, 69? Yeah, when they first came out, with when I was young, that record. But it was a school night. It was a Monday night when the animals were available to play up there. So to accommodate that, uh, they put the animals on first at, at, at 8 p.m. And mm -hmm. then we went on immediately following. Because, you know, any kid who needed to go home to go to, because it was a school night, could do that. But it was a fantastic audience. Warmed up, if you will, by the animals. Yeah. They they opened for <laughs> us. So I'll always be able to say There's that. a feather in the cap right there. Yes, there you go. That's great. So at what point do you get hired as a musical director for production of Godspell? Because I know you were with future legends like Eugene Levy and Martin Shaw. And yes. Comedic legends. Still, we are all still close to this day. Well, I, I graduated from uh, college. University of Toronto, and I sort of made a, d a deal with my parents that a lot of us kids did. I got to try music. Let me try it for a year, see what happens. 
If it's obviously I'm, you know, I'm, I don't have a chance, I'll go back to school maybe. I didn't know, you know, law school or grad school or something. But uh, this was the deal, and my, I remember my dad saying, well, we, we thought you were going to probably do that, go that direction. Uh, but it was kind of a year deal, you know, and during that year, I, I did anything I could uh, to include um, playing in, in uh, not, you know, rock bands and clubs. There was more live music then in bars, you know, not like today when it's mostly DJs or something. Right. Topless bars, you know, on Young Street, the main the main drag there. Yep. Uh, and and then um, also I, I would play, you know, if 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 I had a friend who wanted to aud- was going to audition for a show, uh, I would accompany them. And if it was somebody I didn't know, for instance, you know, I could charge twenty bucks. Uh, and you could come over to my house, we would learn a song together, and then I'd go and accompany them at an, at an audition that they were doing. And this was the case with the show Godspell, which was a 1970s rock musical about Jesus and his disciples. Big uh, hit off were, that was Day by Day, right? That's right. Day by Day was a, was a hit, and they, they had companies all over the world, and they were starting one up in Toronto, and everybody of the, that age group in town was going to audition including a couple of girls, uh, ladies, uh, women that I know, uh, who were both going out, one of whom sang a song from the show, mm-hmm. um, one of the other songs. And Stephen Schwartz, the composer, was in town doing the final auditions. Both of these girls had made the finals. You know, one sang um, by Dusty Springfield, uh, I Only Want to Be With You. Mm-hmm. Then the next one, uh, after she sang the, his song from his show, he said, I want to talk to that piano player. And he asked me to play for the rest of the auditions because I seemed to know, you know, a lot of the, the songs that his pianist, the house pianist didn't know. And luckily, people were singing things that I knew. A lot of people were singing Heart of Gold by Neil Young. That, that was the era. So I stayed, played the rest of the auditions, and at the end of the day, he gave me the job. He said, can you put a band together? four-piece band, and conduct the show. And I was in show business just like that. Wow. Uh, there I was conducting the, you know, I'd never done that before, but it was just a four-piece band, very rock and roll style. Right. A, re- a real rock musical. The drummer really conducting. That's the way sometimes it works in, in rock and roll. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody looks at the drummer, you know. That's kind of the way this was. So I, even though I was no conductor, it was set up so that you didn't really have to be. And here is this marvelous cast that included these people that you mentioned, Marty Short, Eugene Levy, also Andrea Martin, maybe the funniest of all of them. Um, Was Dave Thomas there? Yes, Dave Thomas came in to the show halfway through, yes. Dad Aykroyd wasn't in it, but was hanging backstage. Um, I think I was the first of them to leave uh, and come to the States because Stephen Schwartz said, when this show's over up here, I want you to come to New York and, and work for me there, which I ended up doing. And in 74, 1974, moved to New York and played a show for him called The Magic Show, Broadway show starring the late magician Doug Henning. Oh, yeah. And songs by Stephen Schwartz. So there I, you know, I moved to New York. I was in New York. I did the show for about a year and uh, then maybe not even, actually not even a year, the Saturday Night Live show started. And Howard Shore was the name of the musical director of Saturday Night Live, also from Toronto. Mm. And after I did Godspell, just before I came to move to New York for Stephen Schwartz, I, I, I did a few other plays up there. I was now a theatrical musician and 
On one of the plays, I met Howard Shore. He came in to play saxophone. We hit it off. He called me when he got to New York and said, I'm, I'm here to put a band together for SNL. And I was already there. And before I knew it, I was on TV. That's incredible. I know. It really, you know, quite a blessed uh, series of events. I can't, I can't deny it. I'm always curious about the logistics of what you did on Saturday Night Live. Walk me through a typical week of what it entailed for you to go from like Monday to getting the show on the air for Saturday. Well, for, uh, first of all, you know, they were just developing the schedule then, uh, a schedule which now is well known. You know, everybody knows that the Monday night the host comes in and meets. Well, I don't know if it's still that way anymore, but at that time, you know, the host met kind of with the writers. There was sort of an initial pitch meeting where the writers would pitch ideas to the host if they had any. Now I think it's developed that, you know, Lauren takes the cast and host out or something. All these things became ritual eventually, but at this time it was sort of loose, but uh, Monday night was that. Tuesday was an all-nighter where they wrote the show. Mm -hmm. They wrote it all night. Somehow, and I think it really became, it came about because Lauren Michaels, the producer, was a night owl. And everybody just got on his schedule. He'd roll in about 5 p.m. You know, so that's when everybody would show up. And then they'd often have dinner and start right around 9 p.m. Nuts, you know. <laughs> but if I were involved in a music, you know, if somebody had an idea, say it was a musical host, like I'm thinking about when uh, Carrie Fisher, you know, did the host of the show and Star Wars was out. There was nobody hotter, you know, but sure. she could sing and she wanted to do a number, actually. So there was a number of foot, you know, an idea. Some, uh, two of the women writers had an idea for her. Say she drops down into a, like a beach blanket type, type of movie, oh, right, beach yeah. party movie with Annette and Frankie. Billy Murray can play Frankie Avalon, mm-hmm. Gilda Annette. And she falls to earth as the Star Wars girl with those things in her hair, those buns in her hair. (laughs) And they gave me lyrics, teenager, I'm a teenager from outer space. New Kid on Earth, I think was the title. I'm the new kid. It's hard when you knew where you're the new kid on Earth. Mm -hmm. And so I had to, you know, that that was my job then, write the music for it and be able to perform it in the read-through, which would take place when Lauren rolled in on on Wednesday, around 4 or 5 p.m. And then uh, the number was, everybody agreed, yeah, we're going to do that number. And then it goes into production, and then you got to get an arrangement, you know, someone other than myself, probably Tom Malone, wrote, wrote the arrangement, or maybe it was Lou Marini in this case. Mm-hmm. And we, they go, go into studio blocking on Thursday, a musical artist blocking at usually, I think, 11 a.m. On, on Thursday. They start kind of get the music done, music out of the way. Right. I would often be there even if I wasn't playing. We didn't play too, for too many of the artists, just a few of them, but I would be there anyway, fascinated, just watching, wanting to learn everything I could, you know, watching all these different acts, sound check on the Thursday, and then maybe our, our new Kid on Earth number would be in the schedule. And actually, in that case, I think we, we pre-recorded. So I think we pre-recorded the, uh, the audio. We may have done that on a Thursday later, and Friday do it for camera blocking. Yep. Saturday, we would come in and we'd have the time when we could get the studio to do a little orchestra rehearsal would be 10 a.m. or 11 a.m. Saturday. So that's an all-day deal. Yes. And then you're just all there all day, yes. Uh, we were young. 
That's it. You, yeah, yeah. You, you got to be young, really, yeah. to do it. And I guess we didn't realize. Well, I couldn't, though. You know, I got, many of the musicians could really and probably did leave and come back. You know, in, in time for the dress rehearsal, which would be around 7 p.m. But I would sometimes be involved. You know, I might have to do uh, a rehearsal in the daytime. Maybe it didn't involve the orchestra, you know, but I'd have to be there just to play rehearsal piano. If I was in one other sketch, you know, I'm hanging around just waiting if I had to play piano off stage for somebody. You know what comes to mind is Bill Murray's yeah. uh, lounge singing. Act. Yes. You'd be right there in the skit with him. Yeah, and I used to uh, participate in the in the putting together of them too. Yep. Writing, there was a group of I maybe five of us. Bill himself, Dan Aykroyd, who would always play a traditional character, a, a native Canada character who worked, you know, who usually found a dead animal in the chairlift. Because <laughs> that was always happening. You know, Danny was Canadian too. Believe yeah. me, there was always a dead animal in the sure. chairlift. And um, Marilyn, Suzanne Miller, were writing on it, and I uh, can't remember really. It, it, nobody wants to be left out. Tom Davis, the late great Tom Davis. Of, of the Franklin and Davis comedy right. team, yeah, yep. and put you know put together these different scenarios. Maybe this time Nick is working on a train car. You know, he's in the bar car of a train, and then we'd come up with the various uh, scenarios. But the songs always came right out of his head, Billy's head. It's great. Like he just come in. I want to do Star Wars. I think I could 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 do Star Wars with some lyrics. Yeah, singing, singing that we all sort of contributed a little bit to that. Some of the musical guests, uh, I can't imagine. I mean, the band, my God, you know, they were right before the last waltz. I would imagine, right? That was '76 when the band came on. Uh, oh, oh, the band, yeah. Uh, I think you're right, '76, and I think it was when we had to do the show in Brooklyn. They at that point they would kick the show out of their studios in Thirty Rock during election time, because that's when they did their election returns. They used that studio. We had to go down to Brooklyn, and that was when the band first did it, yes. Yeah, amazing to be able to just be around watching those run-throughs, and I certainly was. I was paying attention as much as I could. When George Harrison and Paul Simon played, that seemed like it was pre-taped. Am I wrong? I was in California for that show. I watched it on TV. Okay. I took the second season off and, and went to Hollywood and did a, a TV pilot. Oh, we're coming I, to that. We're coming to that. <laughs> okay. Anyway, well, that was when I was doing that, that yep. in 76. So I wasn't on that show, but I, I think what I heard was, yeah, that they had done it on a, on a Thursday or something, you know, just that empty studio. Right. And the two of them. What, maybe what, the two of them were sitting in the, or maybe I imagine it, were they sitting in the bleachers singing it? I don't, it was on stage, but it just it didn't oh, seem okay. live. You know, yeah, I, right. I think Holly Simon pre-taped hers too, right? Didn't I was around for that one, but I can't remember. the de- Oh, you're right. I, I do recollect that now. Because she's got stage jitters and didn't want to do it live. Yes, that's right, yeah. yeah but yeah. but Chevy uh, Chase was in the number doing Mick Jagger's part. That's right. And speaking of Mick Jagger, the Rolling Stones. 1978. Were you back from L.A. during that time? Yes, it was epic. It certainly was. Tell me what you remember. Well, I remember an awful lot about it um, because everyone was excited and Lauren was saying, first of all, I I had a meeting with him in, in Los Angeles that summer just before the season started about some other projects that he was going to be doing. 
And he was just so proud. He said, well, you're talking to a man who just booked the Rolling Stones for the opening show. You know, and, and he also said, um, it's well known that the most requested footage, I'm going to get this wrong, I can't quite remember it, but I think the most requested footage from the Sullivan show was the Rolling Stones appearance, something hmm. like that. You know, yeah. so He was aware of how auspicious this might be. Then, during that show week, and within that schedule that I explained, I think Thursday night was the night they were going to assemble uh, themselves uh, in a rehearsal studio, Bill's rehearsal studio on 52nd Street, no longer there. And uh, I got to go over with a small group of us just to be watch the rehearsal. And they, they all kind of assembled it about two hours late. One at a time, they came in. And they just cranked up, you know, they plugged in, and every run-through was a performance. They were now performing for us, us people that had come over from the show. They weren't going to do any rundown or anything that wasn't full-out energy. And that's what they did in this little rehearsal room. And so, yeah, I was five feet, you know, away from him in front watching this. And just watching Jagger, watching how he plays, you know, he lifts the spirits of each musician. He came over to Bill Wyman, just gave him a little nudge and a little wink to say, you know, uh, nice to see you, something like that, <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah, right, right. Quite amazing. Um, however, the schedule was such that they had to do, you know, then the next thing they move into the into 8H, the studio, and they do it for camera in there. So when this would have been... I'm not sure now, you know, maybe Friday, though. Mm -hmm. They now do it again, full out. And they do three numbers, I think. Uh, oh, yeah. Shattered. Um, Beast of Burden. Oh, yeah, right. Beast of Burden. And then what was the third one? Respectable. Amazing. Yeah, right. right. So um, they do, you know, their rehearsal full out. And by Saturday, there's no question about it. They're wasted. You know, they've they've expended a lot of energy. Yeah, mixed voice was not there. Yeah, well, that's what happened. They got too excited, and and we were excited, and really there was almost a competitive spirit during the show. You know, is it going to be our primetime players going to steal it, or are the Stones going to steal it, you know? Yeah, yeah. There was to be a sketch... Do we have to cut away for commercial? I feel like I'm... No, no. <laughs> this is monopolizing. The keep going. Well, um, there was a wonderful little sketch that was going to take place just before the Stones went on to do their first number. And this is something, you know, you could only do in a live show, and I thought it was so cute. We were going to see a backstage at the Stones sketch where uh, there's a security guard played by Belushi. And he's got a clipboard on the list, and only certain people can get in. I'm there as Don Kirshner, who I used to play. Brilliantly. Uh, thanks for remembering. <laughs> Billy Murray had a character, an A&R man, with a satin tour jacket and a date. He, he, Jane Curtin was his date. Well, they won't let us in, you know, and he can't believe it. We're not on the list. Me, and then Tom Davis rolls up with a huge tag of nitrous oxide, and they, you know, right this way, sir. <laughs> They, they, they usher him right in. Uh, and then I, we're right back in the trailer with Keith, uh, I think. And I don't remember who else was there, but Keith was drinking the Southern Comfort and saying, I get this sent to me. He says, I call up and I say, I'm Mick Jagger. <laughs> and they send me a case of this stuff. 
And then, you know, it was supposed to be uh, okay, and then they go on stage, they go right out of the trailer, right up onto the stage and do their first song. So, dress rehearsal, fantastic. But I don't know what, what happened. Maybe, maybe Lauren decided it's not airworthy, or maybe he just lost track of the time or something. I think maybe more like he was going to cut it anyway and didn't tell anybody. Sometimes things like that happen. Well, that's going to be frustrating, Bill. And, and this was, if I may you say, my first conversation with Mick Jagger, and it, it, quite important to me, so I want to just sure. slow down so I get all these details right. You know, th th this cut happened on air. We were ready to do this sketch leading into the number. I had left the bandstand. I was in the makeup room just getting the wig on for Don Kirshner, getting ready to go on for that sketch. And Mick Jagger, he, he's, you know, he's, uh, he may have had some of the Southern comfort too. He, he sort of stumbles into the makeup room. He sees me in the makeup chair, kind of focuses in on me. And then he comes in close and he says to me, you're cut. And that is a conversation that I had uh, <laughs> that, I'll <ne> <laughs> that, I'll, that I'll never forget. You're cut, he was saying, but yeah. it is it is heavy accent, and uh, yeah, yeah. and I was, you know, the sketch was cut. Wow. They they were, but it was cut at the last minute, and that's how I found out. Nonetheless, you know, Stone's still amazing, but yeah, kind of, you know, vocals a little bit shot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and wasn't there another incident? He was saying how he walked over to Billy, and he, well, he walks over to Ronnie, gives him a little tongue action oh, there. Oh, yeah, yeah. And That's he, on TV, isn't it? Yeah, I think it aired once, and then, they, then I think Fred Silverman had like a mini stroke watching that live in his hotel room. I don't know. Well, I, re I kind of remember that. Yeah. But I mean, what, you know, who knows why? On those days. Why that would upset anybody. It's the Rolling Stones, for goodness sake. Right. But it was early, it was different, you know, a little bit different. The rules were just being made. Sure. I, you know, it reminds me of Patti Smith's appearance. Again, I wasn't involved, but watching like a hawk, and she she's rehearsing my generation. Yep. And I could just tell, you know, I had seen The Who. They, oh, they played. I forgot to tell you that we got to see in Thunder Bay the tour of the Herman's Hermits, The Who, and the Blues Magoos. Oh, this was a, you know, a three-band tour that yeah. squeezed in a Thunder Bay stop in an afternoon on their way through to, to Winnipeg. It was an afternoon matinee, and there was a bomb scare, and the uh, hermits didn't go on. Oh. Anyway, that's another story. Where was I? Oh, yeah, Patti Smith is going to do My Generation, and I could just see they're all looking at each other, and it's just obvious to me. And I, I sidled up to her and I said, you know, Patty, I think when The Who did this, they used to destroy their instruments. And she goes, shh. Don't tell it, you know. <laughs> and she did, you know, so sure enough, they destroyed their instruments, but the director didn't know what the hell was going on. Didn't know what to shoot, you know, it just yeah. confused everything. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't know what to do. Didn't get it on camera, I think, because she thought, you know, and she was probably right, I better keep this to myself. Sure. Now, Elvis Costello pissed everybody off, right, because he, he changed the song. He changed the song. To me, his accent was so heavy that you couldn't tell what's, why he had changed it anyway. I, he went into his song, Radio Radio, which I think is anti-media. Yeah. Uh -huh. They were pissed. I mean, little things like that, you wonder why he was banned from NBC for 10 years or whatever it was. I think they were pissed. And then on, a, on an anniversary show, they had him recreate the moment. Well, exactly. So, yeah. so <laughs> there you definitely. go. That's showbiz. Somewhere in my uh, record collection of 45s is a promo single by an act called Greg and Paul. Yeah. Of the old Gene Pitney classic, She's a Rebel. 
Yes. What well, was that all about? Well, uh, everyone remembers what I try to forget. No, that's not really true. <laughs> uh, well, let's see. Uh, the, the sequence. Well, come when I came to New York to do the magic show, uh, my friends were uh, actors and perform. You know, the theatrical people that I had met. One of them, a lovely guy, Don Scardino, uh, went on to direct 30 Rock and uh, currently uh, directed a number of the episodes of uh, the new Murder, Only Murders in the Building, uh, Marty Short, Steve Martin, Selena Gomez thing that's on right now. Anyway, Don Scardino uh, said, I've just been cast in this thing. It's going to be like the monkeys for the 70s. Uh, a show about a rock band who sold their souls to the devil in return for rock stardom. He had been cast in it as an actor, and he said, uh, you know, it's supposed to be like the monkeys. They hope to make an act out of it, which would go on to make records, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought, you know, I got you an audition. Maybe they need an actual musician in the act who would help them. So I got the part, and I, I made a pilot, but the pilot didn't sell. Until 1976 or so, it came back. And I was doing SNL, but they said, you know, we've sold the pilot. Now it was with CBS, I think, and uh, we're going to do five shows or something. And I left SNL and went to Hollywood. And this show was a Don Kirshner idea mm. that he brought to Norman Lear, who was so hot at the time, 12 shows, all in the family, good times, etc. And these two collaborating on this, it seemed like it couldn't miss, but mm. there was a lot of, a lot of problems with it. Uh, it had started out with like four guys in a band. By the time it aired, it was just Greg Evigan and me. It was just down to a duo. Yeah. That was just one of the things, you know. And we cut, yeah, he's a rebel, but changed it to she's a rebel. Horrible idea, but I just loved the song so much. I wanted a chance to do it again. Although that's how Gene Pitley originally recorded it, didn't he? One would think, unless yeah. he recorded it just as a as a songwriting demo, because Vicky Carr was gonna was gonna sing it first, and then the Crystals, but it was really Darlene Love. Darlene singing. Love, yeah. She's a rebel and she'll never ever be any good. She's a rebel because she never ever does what she should, just because she doesn't do what everybody else does. That's no reason why I can give her all my love. She's always good to me. Anyway, but so yeah, we made that he's a rebel, but you know what? The drummer was the great Hal Blaine who had oh. who had played on the original. And what I learned from him just that afternoon, recutting it, was you know, still serves me in good stead today. He explained how they would do, you know, percussion and, and his drum part. Usually it wasn't no ride cymbal. Spectre just wanted to get that ride effect from the percussion instead of the drum instead of the cymbals sure uh you know a great trick when you think of it i was that's gonna say what, that's a trick that ringo did from time to time when you listen yeah to that's that, right yeah. the way ringo would play the shaker was even distinctive wasn't it when he yes. would put the shaker on top sure, sure. similar kind of thing to, to the specter thing absolutely Anyway, I, luckily when the show didn't get picked up, I got my old job back on Saturday Night Live and, and I brought back an, this impression of Don Kirshner. Having worked with him, you know, I really got him down and I started doing it on SNL and so it wasn't all a total loss. No, then you actually were a bona fide member on the last season. I was what they call a feature player. That's the word, feature player. And I don't know how you feel about this, but I think it's cool. You have the dubious distinction of being the first, not the last, but the first cast member. Say the F word live on TV. Yes. Well, you know, the saving grace is I did not do it on purpose. Of course. 
others did and got fired for it, uh. I was afraid when it slipped out that I was going to get fired. It, we were tempting fate, really, with a sketch. Well, it's a long story. Those trogs, mm -hmm. uh, wild thing. Right. You may have heard the tape that, that yeah. used to circulate with the trogs trying to follow up wild thing. They're in the studio trying to make music, but they don't really know how to communicate with each other. They don't know any musical terms. Mm. But they do know the F word, and they're saying it over, <laughs> over and over again. Where we, uh, it was Frank and Davis again, they took that tape and they transcribed it and they transposed it into medieval times. And I was in the sketch as a medieval musician rehearsing for the king or something. But saying the words of the trogs, except for the F word, we made up our own word, flog. Flogging, and I was saying, you had the flogging beat, you lost the flogging thing. Al Franken said, you know, that the flogging thing is getting so many laughs in dress rehearsal. If you want to add a few more, he said, go ahead. And so I got carried away and I said the actual F word. Came out of my mouth, whoops, and I've, I saw the tape. My whole face turns white. I'm sure. Oh my, what did I do, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. But afterwards, Lord said to me, well, you just broke down the last barrier. <laughs> Uh, I think of the fact that we were doing English accents. Again, you couldn't understand it, really. I don't think they got any complaints. So like you said, you're tempting fate with that anyways. Yes, that's right. Everybody yeah. understood. I'm not sure, but, uh, you know, I got a little too loose. It happens. But imagine getting, you know, just the opportunity of being loose on live television. What a... That's cool. Uh, you know, <laughs> I guess so. I don't take it lightly, though. I was certainly honored to have that much trust, and I guess I betrayed it, but... Not, not on a, purpose. No, that's not a betrayal. Everybody understood it. That's an accident. It's like slipping and falling. It's not a betrayal. It's an accident. That's right. Oh, thank you. Thanks for putting it down. God, you know, you've done so much, and we haven't even touched on Letterman. It's funny. I've seen it the first season, and you didn't have speaking lines in the beginning. He would introduce you, and then... Yes, yes, yes. It's true. Although when they hired me, they said, you know, are you the kind of person that Dave could play off of? Could you play straight for him, in other words, you know? Mm. And I would just say, yes, yes, of course, you know, I have experience. I was in sketches on SNL, you know. Uh, but it wasn't really written into the show that way. Right. Yes, yeah, they would introduce me, but then they would just go on. And I realized, well, I've got to take this opportunity myself then and see what happens. And I did. One night, I just started talking. When he introduced me, he wasn't expecting it, but I just started talking. Yep. But guess what? That my microphone wasn't even turned on. They didn't expect it. They didn't think they, you know, they didn't think they were supposed to turn it on. Uh -huh. So I had to get that, you know. Oh no, no, yes, they're supposed to, you know. So yeah. once I got that straight, then I tried it again, and somehow Dave got a kick out of it. I don't remember exactly, but he was encouraging afterwards. He said that was funny. Do more of that. And again, you know, what a wonderful thing for a boss to say. Say hello to Paul Schaefer and the gentleman. How do you do, gentlemen? How about this band? Seriously. We are going to swing tonight, I want to tell you. David Letterman. Well, thank you, Paul. That was very nice. That was Paul actually doing a little talking over there. Thank you, Paul. That was very nice. We've, uh... It cracked them up. You're right. And that just saying that changed the whole trajectory of the show in your career. Well, I certainly benefit from it, I yeah. guess. Yeah. Um, I don't know what, what else to say, but it's a tribute to how unwritten that show was. It really was spontaneous. Sometimes, of course, there would be a sketch. We would go into written lines. You could tell, though. But otherwise, yeah. 
if he's just saying that and I'm just saying that, it's as you see it. Right. Uh, I don't know if any of the other shows are really like that. Certainly the reality shows aren't. No, and the, the late night talk shows for what they are today, not my Mostly scripted, I yeah, think. Yeah, and, and that's why I watch, I mean, I used to watch you guys, and I would tape it from the night before, because I was in junior high school, but I would watch it every day after school. Great. On the tape, and you know, the acts you had, again, you know, similar to Saturday Night Live, legendary acts. I know who your favorite is, but tell people. Yes, there was no question about it that James Brown... The first time he did it, which was in 82, not long after we first went on the air, right? was uh, he played with my four-piece band and just brought two hordes. But when he started singing and dancing, you know, one played better than one ever thought, you know, possible. You just, there's, there's no avoiding it. You know, you just play like you never thought you could. Right. And every time he came back, it was like a music lesson for me. Didn't he ask you what songs you wanted him to do? Well, that was so great. You know, I think that it came about because when we came on TV with Letterman and we had to, we, the band, had to play songs going in and out of commercial, that was sort of left to me. And maybe it's because I'm so lazy, but, you know, uh, my predecessors may have, might have written those, what they would call cues themselves, you know, and get paid for playing, you know, commercial number one song, you know. Right. But I said, well, I don't want to, you know, let's play my favorite songs and the favorites of all you guys in the band, you know. And we were playing a lot of James Brown. Sure. Just of our own, on our own, instrumentally, going into commercial and right. stuff. I think he may have heard it because his agent called and said, James wants to do the show. Oh, my God, fantastic. I said, what song, you know, what does he want to do? He And the agent said, he wants you guys to pick what you want to do with him. Oh, my God. Well, it was very smart when you think about it. You know, what do we know, he's asking. Right. What are we going to be able to play well? But we gave him, I think, maybe some uh, that he wasn't expecting. Steve Jordan was the drummer at the time, now with the Rolling Stones, as we know. And he said, oh, I'd love to do Sex Machine with him. So that went on the list. Hiram Bullock, the late great guitarist, was in the band. He said, oh, my God, I'd love to do um, There Was a Time, thinking about all that great guitar stuff. Okay, so James said yes to those two. And we rehearsed the first one, Sex Machine. We got it down pretty much. Second one, you know, this is when he was, an artist was going to do two songs. Today, they would do one, and it would be at the very, very end. Yeah. James would did one right away. He did a second one, There Was a Time. We ran out of rehearsal time. We had no ending. I didn't even know how, I don't know how he's going to end it. But we went into the show that way, and, and he did end it. He just cut it off. Just turned to the band, cut it off. Yeah. And, and, and we were so excited by this appearance. I remember that Steve uh, Jordan and I had both gotten our first VCR <laughs> tape machines. Right. And after, after every taping, we would go either to his place or mine and watch James Brown again, watch the appearance. And we memorized not only all the music, but the dialogue we had down. We can still do it today, Steve, I, Will Lee. And he said, just on the panel, before the end of the show, he said, you know what I'd like to do right now? Before you close, he said to Letterman, can we close with, I got, I got the feeling? Because he'd heard us do it going into commercial. We hadn't even rehearsed it. Wow. And then you hear Steve Jordan off camp. Whoa! You hear his voice. <laughs> and Letterman just, yes. You know, he will cut a commercial. He just gave him the whole show, and he did a third number. Unprecedented. Again, couldn't happen today. Wouldn't happen today. No. They don't let things just flow. 
let it happen. Right. But Dave was very much into wanting to do that and resisting. You know, if somebody would say, well, let's pretend that you guys have just, no, he said, you know, we don't pretend, you know. It either happens or we do. He just didn't want to, you know, do a whole sketch about about a, a made-up premise. Right. He wanted things real. Right. And it, it was very special for that reason. Absolutely. I'm going to ask you the same dumb question I asked you three hours ago. Um, <laughs> any musical guest that would hard to work with on Letterman? I don't think so. Nothing? I Nothing comes to mind, really. Um, and I don't even mean that they're hard to work with. Was there any um, near misses or tragedies? I have my share of, you know, we played for so many acts. Right. Some of them were lost for various reasons, and I would t I'd have to take responsibility for Willie DeVille, <laughs> comes to mind. Well, I still feel bad about it. One time, uh, Patty Smythe, I had played something for her, and I had screwed up something. I felt bad for six months until I saw her, and I said, Patty, I'm so sorry I fucked up your song. And she said, what? I didn't, I didn't notice anything. Yeah, see? <laughs> We're always our hottest critic. Well, maybe. But I certainly, you know, uh, once in a while, you know, things things did go wrong. And um, Will Lee, you know, nothing ever went wrong. He made sure. He was that kind of musician. True. Made sure that nothing went wrong with what he was going to do if he had to write every single note out. And sometimes he did. That's how, you know. I was a little more seat of your pants. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. My yes. God, since 1986, and you've seen them all. You know, for me as a fan, watching Mike Love's speech was definitely an experience. But what were some of the highlights for you? All different ones. Of course, at the beginning, you know, the very first one. And I got hired to be the house band by Ahmed Erdogan himself. Huh. Somehow I had ended up on his session, The Honey Drippers. He did a project with Robert Plant. Love it. Um, and I just got the call to come play piano on it. And that's when I worked with Ahmed for the first time. And then he called me for this thing. And they didn't want to ask the musicians to perform. They said, you know, they're here to be honored. We can't ask them to. But they said, well, we'll just have amplifiers and guitars on stage and see what happens. After they take a big picture at the end, everybody together. Well, they went running for those guitars. Oh, sure. They were just dying to play. And that was just totally spontaneous that year. And it should be said that those years, those first few years, were not televised, was not meant for the general public. Well, that's why they, they were loose enough to be able to jam totally right. spontaneously. Right. A big star wouldn't necessarily want to be seen in that light. You know, especially if there were, well, there's going to be mistakes, it's going to be loose, you know. It's just a jam session. Uh, but once it got on TV, I think, you know, you weren't going to see as many of those moments. Right. Uh, nonetheless, uh, when it did go on TV and become a, a more rehearsed thing, where artists being honored would perform and rehearse, uh, the Mamas and Papas somehow stands out. John Phillips was alive, Denny was alive, Michelle, of course, was there. Mm-hmm. And I had three girls for Replace Mama Cass. And I don't know, there was something about it that uh, really, I, that was an important record for me when I was a kid. And sure. uh, to play it, and it, it sounded awfully good to me. I remember that. Was Mackenzie Phillips part of that? Not with of? them at the time. Because I, well, I mean, she certainly had joined. Yes, she had joined the Mamas and Papas, the new Mamas and Papas. Wasn't it Spanky McFarland? That's right. Yeah. Yes, and I saw that. Um, eh. Well, it was, you know, Spanky could sing. 
Oh, sure. And they kept the tradition alive, and I think that Scott McKenzie was doing it, too. That's right. Guys saying, if you're going to San Francisco. Yep. Yeah, it was a little weird here seeing them in Las yeah. Vegas. Because California Dreaming being almost a hymn, you know. Sure. To come into an open lounge in the Four Queens downtown, which I had the experience of, and hearing California Dreaming ringing out over the slot machines <laughs> was a little bizarre, yes. Yeah. Nonetheless, he kept it alive and yep. then was there to sing uh, at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Do you get nervous? I mean, are there any uh, inductees where you go, oh boy, this is going to be something? Or is it you're just in the zone and you don't think in those terms? Um, I think I get nervous if I've got something to play on keyboard that's hard. That does strike me. There were things that are hard for you? Well, Sure. I remember the year that we did it. Uh, we did a couple of years in Los Angeles. Last year, uh, Quincy Jones was inducted, and we were, Usher was going to sing uh, Rock With You. There were some hard things in there. Luckily, I had a, a, a hired Greg Fillengains, my dear friend from Los Angeles, and anything I couldn't play, he could play in about two seconds. Sure. <laughs> I gave him a lot of the heavy lifting that day. I would imagine programming the Moogs and things like that could be daunting. Certainly, I, you know, yeah, I didn't really keep up on electronics and digital synths and things like that. You had them on Letterman, though. I had my, yeah, well, I started to pass them off as vintage. Ah, yeah. yeah. Um, and get away with it that way. Anything coming up that you want to plug? Uh, you got the great album. I know it's not new anymore, but the world's most dangerous band. Great record. Oh, yes, I'll appreciate that. No, I'm just, you know... I'm, I'm going to be doing some more symphony shows. I did one just before the quarantine in Kalamazoo, Michigan. It was so exciting. Uh, mostly rock and roll and R&B, but with a symphony orchestra. And I've got a few dates coming back now since the quarantining. I don't know the dates, though. I'm going to be in Long Beach, California, though. Um, I'm going to be in Vancouver and, and Winnipeg, Canada. You do the website thing? I mean, are you into social media or is that... Well, I'm, I'm, I'm old. <laughs> Join the club. But aside from that, I certainly have a website. And I have a lovely gal named Olivia who helps me. And she, you know, I do Instagram and, and Twitter, thanks to her. Cool. We oldsters are doing it, you know. <laughs> but there's nothing like, you know, a person who's really doing it legitimately. Okay, I'd like to introduce two more members of the group. Our musical director, Paul Schaefer. Mr. Entertainment himself. Sick and tired by the way you do. Good time, Papa, gonna poison you. Break a goop of dust all around your bed Wake up on these days, find your own self dead She said you shouldn't say that I said, what did I say to make you mad this time, babe? She said, mm, I don't know my own She got dimple in her jaw Clothes she wear made out of the best of cloth She can take them and wash them Put them up beside the wall She can throw them out the window Pick them up a little bit before they fall Sometimes I think you got your habits on She said you shouldn't say that I said, well, what did I say to piss you off this time? 
many women you got. I looked at my mother dear, didn't even crack a smile. Said a women kill me. I don't mind dying. The woman I love, I want a week before last. The woman I love, I got outclassed. I thought I wanted you, baby, a long time ago. You don't want you still, gonna have to let you go. She said, you shouldn't say that. I said, well, baby, you know when you bend over, I see every better Christmas. When you bend back, I'm looking right into the new year. She said, honey, honey, you know I gave up cigarettes for my new year's resolution, but I didn't give up smoking. I said, woman, woman, you gonna walk a mile for a camel? Or you gonna make like Mr. Chesterfield and satisfy you? She said, she said, that all depends on what you're packing. Regular or king size. And then she pulled out my Jim Beam. And to her surprise, it was every bit as hard as my Canadian club. I said, I said, well, now what you got to say, babe? I said, mm -hmm. I don't know. My, oh my, oh my. She said, I don't know what my baby's putting down. From the Blues Brothers 1978 live know. album, Briefcase Full of Blues, that's I Don't Know, featuring the great Paul Schaefer. I want to thank for taking time out of his impossibly busy schedule to be on the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast. And if you like what we do, all of our shows are available for streaming at www.itsonlyrockandrollpodcast.com, as well as iHeartRadio, iTunes, YouTube, and my personal favorite, two tin cans and a string. Remember to pull it tight, kids. Visit us on social media at Facebook and Instagram at It's Only Rock and Roll Podcast. All typed out as one word, no spaces or commas, please. Come on. And as always, thank you for checking out the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast. We'll see you next time.
Place to 